Good evening, everyone. Welcome back. Well, let's go ahead and pray, everyone. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, as we continue these days of Lent, we ask for an outpouring of your Spirit that we may be open to what you desire to do in our hearts and our souls, that we may better recognize your work in our hearts, and that we may recognize where you want to love us more and be open to that. We ask all these prayers through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, so just a, a reminder, last couple weeks, um, last week we looked at Rule 1 and Rule 2 of St. Ignatius. And what Rule 1 says, when somebody's fundamental direction in life is moving from God into sin, right? So we're moving away from God, the general directory is away. The good spirit works in that person uh, by troubling them to try to get them to turn back. Right? And the enemy works by encouraging them to stay here, stay on this path, to keep leading them away from God. Okay? Rule 2 said, for those whose fundamental direction in life is moving away from sin, away from vice, and to God, the good spirit works by encouraging to keep us on the path, and the enemy works by trying to trouble to get us off the path. Okay? So what we talked about last week were these two fundamental directions in life, and now the presumption is rules 3 through 14 will apply to those who are living in rule 2, moving away from sin and toward God as a fundamental direction in life. All right, so what we're going to look at this evening now are rules 3, 4, and 5, okay? What rule 3 does is it defines what spiritual consolation is, right? We hear that word sometimes, but we're going to put some some flesh on that to try to define what is spiritual consolation. Rule four, we're going to then define what spiritual desolation is and find it to be the opposite of consolation. And then we're going to begin a set of rules, rule five tonight, and then rule five through nine is going to give a person advice on what to do when they find themselves in a time of spiritual desolation. Like, what can I do? Do I have to just, like, wait this out? No. We'll, we'll look at some practical advice as to what to do, okay? So, for Rule 3, Spiritual Consolation, for those of you who have the book, the best thing to do would be to go to page 48. And we're going to actually look at the, the text, the definition of spiritual consolation, as defined by St. Ignatius here. So, page 48. You'll see text there about halfway down where it says third rule there in italics. So, the third is of spiritual consolation. I call it consolation when some interior movement is caused in the soul through which the soul comes to be inflamed with love of its Creator and Lord, and consequently, when it can love no created thing on the face of the earth in itself, but only in the Creator of them all. Likewise, when it sheds tears that moves to the love of its Lord, whether out of sorrow for one's sins, or for the passion of Christ our Lord, or because of other things directly ordered to his service and praise. Finally, I call consolation every increase of hope, faith, and charity, and all interior joy that calls and attracts to heavenly things into the salvation of one's soul, quieting it and giving it peace in its creator and Lord. So a bit wordy, but that's how Ignatius defines spiritual consolation, okay? So let's look for a second at uh, consolation in general. So first, what is just consolation in 
in general? Before adding the spiritual element to it, what is consolation in general? It's something happy or uplifting, which instills in the soul joy and gives peace. Right? So consolation is something happy, something uplifting. It instills joy and gives peace. Now, when we add spiritual consolation as kind of a qualifier to this general consolation, spiritual is anything that has to do with our life of faith, anything that has to do with our pursuit of the will of God, right? So when we have spiritual then, we see that it's, it's a stirring in our heart, an uplift in our heart that increases faith, that increases hope, that increases love, increases charity. It has something to do with our understanding of God's will. And so it, it just adds a spiritual dimension to, to consolation. All right. Now, the author here, Father Gallagher, spends a lot of time in this chapter talking about what he calls non-spiritual <laughs> consolation. Okay, Because we know that we have consolations in life that are not necessarily spiritual. Okay, we can, have, we can experience consolation, this uplift of heart, this joy, this peace, that's not necessarily spiritual. We're just going to call it non-spiritual consolation. Now, that doesn't mean it's bad, right? There's, there's not a negative implication here for non-spiritual uh, consolation. It simply means that it does not have a direct or immediate impact on our life of faith or our pursuit of God's will. Right? So we as human beings, we, we encounter many happy, uplifting experiences in life, but not all of them are spiritual. For example, you can be driving through the mountains, and your heart is stirred to the majesty of the mountains. Okay? You're being consoled. There's an uplift of heart. There's a peace there. There's a joy there, but it's not necessarily directly impacting our life of faith. It's a non-spiritual consolation. You can be listening to beautiful music or art or watching a play, or watching a good movie, right? And there can be a consolation there because there's this uplift of heart. It can be good friendship or good company, going for a run, getting some exercise, and feeling good afterwards. Non-spiritual consolation, good meal, a cup of coffee, those types of things, okay? So what's the relationship then between these non-spiritual consolations that I just gave some examples of and spiritual consolation? Okay, because what, what, what we're up to here is we're trying to accept when God is wanting to console us spiritually. That's what we're going to eventually try to do. When God's trying to pour forth spiritual consolation in our hearts, we want to accept that. The relationship between non-spiritual consolation and spiritual consolation is that even though they're different, so oftentimes, and this will be kind of a key word tonight, this non-spiritual consolations, these different events I just explained, can be a springboard, if you don't read that, it can be a springboard towards spiritual consolation, okay? If you're like, okay, what's going on here? Let's look at a good example from St. Therese of Lisieux's life, page 49. It's a nice little fun story from a saint that many of us know and love, St. Therese, where she kind of gives some indication of how a non-spiritual consolation can be a springboard for spiritual consolation. So at the very bottom there, you'll see it indented the last paragraph, and then it'll go on to page 50 as well. Descending the steps leading into the garden, she saw a little white hen under a tree, protecting her little chicks under her wings. Some were peeping out from under. 
Trez stopped, looking at them thoughtfully. After a while, I made a sign that we should go inside. I noticed her eyes were filled with tears, and I said, you're crying. She put her hand over her eyes and cried even more. I can't explain it just now. I'm too deeply touched. That evening, in her cell, she told me the following, and there was a heavenly expression on her face. I cried when I thought how God used this image in order to teach us his tenderness toward us. All through my life, that is what he has done for me. He has hidden me totally under his wings. Earlier in the day, when I was leaving you, I was crying when going upstairs. I was unable to control myself any longer, and I hastened to our cell. My heart was overflowing with love and gratitude. Okay, so we can see there, the non-spiritual experience that Tress had was seeing a hen taking care of her little chicks. Right? It moved something in her heart, and she had this image of God. And there's all kinds of images in Scripture of, of us being under the wing of God, being under the wings of God, under the shadow of His wing. So you can see then how this non-spiritual consolation was a springboard for a spiritual experience. All right? So that's one point that I just wanted to draw out here this evening. Now, what we have to be able to recognize in our lives is that so often we can confuse non-spiritual experiences and spiritual experiences. And we don't want to get those two things confused. We want to try to keep them separate. So that's, that's the main point of making this, this distinction. Okay? Great. Now, if you go to page 52, we're now going to look at examples of, of spiritual consolation. And you'll see these headings right there on page 52. You see one at the top, 53. You see one at the top, one at the bottom. These are direct quotes from the definition from St. Ignatius of spiritual consolation, as we just read in Rule 3 in the actual text, okay? So what we're going to look at here is I'm not going to look at every example provided, but I think it's really helpful to see. And so the first form of, a, of, of spiritual consolation is when the soul, when your soul, when my soul, comes to be inflamed with love of its creator and Lord, okay? That's a direct connection to the spiritual life, a direct connection to the life of faith, because the soul is, is, is inflamed with wanting to love God, wanting to love our, our creator. If you go towards the, uh, the middle there, we're going to look at three quick examples Halfway down, the paragraph that begins with such spiritual consolations, go into that a little bit, and it says, a woman attempts to pray. Okay? So here's an example of this form of spiritual consolation. A woman attempts to pray with the Psalms and perseveres in the midst of distractions. Then she encounters a phrase that speaks to her heart and assures her that God is with her in her struggles. Her heart warms with a sense of love for her faithful God. So you can see there, very clear language of spiritual consolation, being consoled by God, God reminding this individual of his fidelity. Okay, let's keep going to this next little example. Or again, a man has been worried about a difficult situation to be faced at work this day. He has faced it, and matters have gone well. The experience reveals to him afresh that the infinite God knows and loves him. As he drives home, his heart expands in a happy sense of love for the God who is so close to him in time of need. That's a great example 
of kind of a non-spiritual reality taking place, namely making a difficult decision at work, driving home, it having gone well, and being grateful to God for being so close to him. Okay? So as you can see here, what we're trying to do is just recognize in everyday experiences how God is wanting to console and love us. And, And these are just examples of that. The next one here, you'll see in that same paragraph, keep on going. In church on Sunday, the singing is particularly alive and speaks to the heart of a woman in the congregation. The words of faith, the beauty of the sacred melody, and the sense of communion she feels with the worshiping assembly raise in her heart a warm sense of love for the God who pours out his goodness upon her. In each case, the person's heart is inflamed with love of its creator and Lord. So being moved, the heart being moved in worship of God, in singing at Mass. Another example. Okay? Good. Uh, Let's move across the page to page 53. Another form of spiritual consolation is, I'll quote it here, and consequently, when it can love no greater thing on the face of the earth than itself, but only in the creator of them all. So this is is an example of, of loving God more than anything on earth. Okay? Um, if you can go to the paragraph where it says of a young man, second one there, a young man clearly senses God's call to ordained ministry and is pursuing his theological training in the seminary. Something within him, however, remains attached to the places and persons he has left in order to pursue God's call. One day, he spends an hour in the seminary chapel with prayer. As he prays, his heart is inflamed with love of its creator and Lord. He feels God very close to him senses a deep response of love for God well up in his heart in return. He knows with utter clarity that God's love is what his heart most deeply desires. Within the experience, he senses a new freedom regarding his attachment to all he has left behind. His love for those places and persons is no less strong, but now he can love them in the God whose love he perceives so profoundly. Now his love for all such created things ceases to burden his response to God's call. His heart is inflamed with love of his creator and Lord, and consequently he can love no greater thing in the face of the earth in itself, but only in the creator of the home. So this young man uh, was facing difficulties being away from family, away from friends, pursuing God's call to the priesthood. That's not a bad thing, like your family. Right? That's, that's a good thing. But what God did in this moment of prayer is he helped, is God helped this man to love these his family, in context of love for God. Okay, so just examples of different forms of, of spiritual consolation. Okay, what Ignatius wants us to be able to do, everyone, in prayer, what he wants us to be able to do, is to imagine what would happen in our spiritual lives if we became more aware of God's ordinary working, day in and day out in these different forms of consolation he wants to pour out, right? What would happen day in and day out if, if we just had a, a, a greater awareness of God wanting to love us? And, and that's what we're looking at here. Unfortunately, the, there's much more time devoted to desolation in this book than consolation because it's, <laughs> we seem to have to fight that more, it seems, than, than live in consolation. It seems like we're always trying to fight the movement of desolation. So he begins by using two examples when talking about spiritual desolation. He talks about Alice and Jane. 
bottom page 58, right in the middle there, uh, we're going to hear a little bit about Alice. Alice is a dedicated woman of faith, active for years in her parish. Sharing the life of the parish is a source of spiritual strength for her and brings her joy in the Lord. More recently, she has moved to a new town and joined the local parish. Here, too, Alice has sought involvement in the parish community, but in her new setting has found this involvement more difficult to achieve. A year passes amid struggles, and she begins to question the value of her efforts. A point comes when Alice sees herself as a pretty complete failure and feels altogether discouraged. Recently, even in her own personal prayer, she has experienced feelings of emptiness, of being abandoned by God. She feels like God is no longer near, and she becomes overwhelmed with frustration. She wonders if she isn't altogether losing her faith in God's loving care. She does continue to be faithful to community worship and to her personal time of prayer, but it all seems hopeless and meaningless. Okay? That's an example of the working of spiritual desolation. Somebody who's committed, somebody who's active, um, somebody who is, has been involved and had a certain level of peace in the faith, and then all of a sudden, for, for a variety of reasons, she starts buying into this lie that everything's a, a waste, everything's hopeless, everything's meaningless. Okay, that is very clearly uh, not the work of God. Okay? So we have to recognize that and say, okay, feelings of hopelessness uh, and somebody that's moving away from sin into God is not the movement of God. And we have to recognize that and reject that. Because the whole point of these exercises is to, um, to, to reject movements of spiritual desolation. Okay? Another helpful example here is Jane. Right below that. Jane is a dedicated religious woman in her late 30s. She, come, she has come to a retreat center and made a retreat with the assistance of her spiritual director. During the first days of her retreat, Jane has experienced great peace and a happy sense of God's closest to her. On the third day of her retreat, the joy she feels is God's holy presence moves her to increase her time of prayer. The following is a description of the next days of her retreat. Day four, Jane gets up with a bad headache and feeling exhausted and restrained. She cannot pray well. All joy has evaporated. She is tired and sad and moody. Finally, in the evening, she tells the director about her action the previous day and its results. The director advises cutting down on her time and some more. Day five, she follows the advice, prays less, but still has no enthusiasm and is filled with gloom. Day six, at her morning prayer, she becomes very much disturbed. She begins to doubt the Lord's presence to her, even in the opening days of the retreat. Probably, she thinks, she should attribute everything to her overactive imagination. Who is she that be given a taste of the sweetness of the Lord? She begins to grow discouraged with the thought that she is not meant for a deep prayer life. Her desire for God is just an illusion. The rest of the day is one of disquietude, confusion, and a sense of discouragement. Okay? So day three of retreat, things are going really well. Feeling God's presence. Wanting to increase her time of prayer. The next day she wakes up with a headache. It sends her into a bit of a spiral. And by the end, she's looking back to day three and saying, I think I just made all that stuff up on day three. Feeling close to God. I just made all that up. Very clearly not the work of God. Very clearly this work of, of spiritual desolation. Trying to, once again, remember what the enemy's trying to do here. God 
sin. These people are moving away from sin to God, away from vice into virtue, and the enemy doesn't like it and wants to weaken this trajectory. The enemy wants to weaken that, and so he proposes these lies, things like, you're making this up. You just got a really overactive imagination. Okay? False. This, this, this is how the enemy works. He works through uh, desolation in these individuals. Okay? So those are just uh, a couple things to, to mention. Now, let's make this point. You see how for both Alice and Jane in these examples, it started with a non-spiritual desolation. It started by Alice feeling discouraged on a level of affect, on a level of her mood. It then moved her to the level of faith and feeling abandoned by God. So it started with just kind of this moodiness that I feel discouraged, but then when it's fed, when that feeling is like encouraged in our hearts, it led to the level of faith and feeling abandoned by God. The same was true for Jane. She felt discouraged. She felt tired. She had a headache. It then eventually moved her to doubt the Lord's care for her. Okay? So these are movements. These are experiences of spiritual desolation. All right? Now, just as we mentioned, there can be non-spiritual consolations. There also can be non-spiritual desolations. And we need to make a distinction between non-spiritual desolations and spiritual desolation because we don't want to get them confused right the mo- the best example of a non-spiritual desolation is being overwhelmed like a physical way being uh, overwhelmed because of lack of sleep being overwhelmed because of being overworked uh, being overwhelmed because of not getting enough nourishment or exercise or rest right and so there's a difference between just being overwhelmed or physically tired and being spiritually desolate Right? This, these are examples here. What I'm giving examples of are, are non-spiritual desolations, physical. You can also have different levels of emotional non-spiritual desolation, being disheartened, being depressed, a psychological heaviness. And just like non-spiritual consolations, St. Therese, hands in the garden, was a springboard to the spiritual consolation, God taking care of her, the same is true for non-spiritual desolations, being tired, being dejected in an emotional way, whatever it might be, non-spiritual desolation can then be a springboard to spiritual desolation, right? If we're tired, we're more likely to be prone to buy into lies that, that, that are opposed to spiritual desolation. Now, let me add this. The less we do, everyone, to overcome non-spiritual desolation, uh, the less we do to, to, to overcome that, the more likely it's going to be a spiritual desolation. Right? The less we do, the less we do to overcome uh, different forms of non-spiritual desolation, the more likely it's going to lead to spiritual desolation. Okay. Good. So let's look at a couple of 
couple more examples here. Here's a good one, page 63. Page 63, halfway through, we're going to hear about John. John has dedicated his life to the Lord for years, following a time of conversion in his early 30s. The faith that gives meaning to his work, daily prayer, participation in the church, and family life as a response to God's love is the most important thing in his life. To all this, and the love he feels for God, his heart is consistently drawn. His former self-centered and self-indulgent lifestyle has long ceased to attract him. But now, prayer has been dry for some weeks, and John is afraid that something has gone wrong. God seems distant, and he fears that he has somehow failed the Lord. He begins to doubt the authenticity of his entire life of faith, and though he perseveres in his effort to pray and to serve, his heart is increasingly heavy and troubled. This day, John feels lonely and finds that he has no desire for his customary prayer. He would rather postpone or simply omit the prayer. He considers channel surfing on television or visiting different websites and chat rooms on the internet, and the thought seems welcome to him. In the heaviness of this moment, his feelings of attraction for his life of faith weaken, and certain of his former patterns of self-indulgence, long distasteful to him, now begin to attract him. John experienced a movement in times of spiritual desolation toward what is low and earthly. One of the main things that happens during spiritual desolation is we are moved and attracted to low and earthly things. Let me say that again. We're attracted to low and earthly things as opposed to the things of God. Right? Ah, oh, it's too much work. But I'm just going to During time of spiritual desolation, we're more likely to be attracted to low and earthly things. So John, here he was trying to be committed to prayer. There's dryness in prayer. He just kind of gave it up because he thought maybe it's just a little easier to uh, channel surf and go on the internet. Not that there's anything inherently wrong with those things. Okay. This is another form of spiritual desolation. The heading there, about two thirds of the way down, says, feeling as if separated from one's creator and Lord. The two key words there are as if. Because the reality is, we're not. But we feel like we are. Right? So in those moments of feeling far from God, that doesn't mean that you are far from God. Because feelings can care. Reality doesn't care. The fact of the matter is, baptism says to you and to me, I am with you. Baptism says to you and to me, I am with you always. Right? That's the reality. But our feelings can err, and they, we feel as if we're separated from God. So we don't want to equate our feelings, which are real, I mean, which are like, I mean, real in terms of we're experiencing them. We don't want to equate our feelings with what is actually true in the eyes of God, because that's really important in this whole process. Good. Any questions on spiritual desolation? I know that there's, there's a lot there, but remember, um, in souls, in individuals who are moving from sin to God, the enemy works through spiritual desolation.
and he works by discouraging and disquieting and agitating and causing anxiety and, and all those things. The point should be made of spiritual consolation. That spiritual consolation, meaning experiencing the loving presence of God in our hearts, experiencing spiritual consolation is a gift from God. Right? I, I trust we can all point to great moments and various moments in our lives where we feel close to God. That is a gift. That's a gift. Period. It's a gift from God. Spiritual consolation is a gift from God. Spiritual desolation, feeling far from God, is never something that God gives. He permits it, He allows it, but He doesn't give it to you. Right? So we're in moments where we're saying, Wow, I just I feel really far from God. Maybe this is what God wants me to be in right now. No. The whole point here is he doesn't want us sitting in spiritual desolation. He wants us moving out of it. He wants us to be active in, in trying to resist it and reject it. Okay? So God will permit spiritual desolation. Uh, just like he permits evil in the world. But God doesn't cause evil. And God doesn't cause desolation. He permits it, he allows it. And so what do we do? And, and like I said here, what rules five and nine are now going to do is give us concrete ways to respond to those time periods in our lives of spiritual desolation. Right? Might be a week, might be a month, might be a year, might be a decade. But we need to be able to respond to that so we can get out of it. Because remember, we don't want to just sit there in it. We, we want to get out of it. And so what we'll file will do, you'll be a 72. And this is the last one that I will wrap that up. The first rule, forgiveness and direction, you're going to have a spiritual desolation, a time for fidelity, says. A time for fidelity. A time, basically, to make no changes. Now, we have to, that's nuance. Okay? What I mean by that is, people will hear this. Father, you said never make a change in your spiritual desolation. In regards to a decision you made during the time of consolation, don't make a change. We'll flush that out. But, for example, if a person is in an unhealthy relationship and they're in spiritual desolation, they might say to themselves, well, I'm, not, I'm in spiritual desolation. I, I don't really feel close to God, and I better not make a change, so I better stay in this relationship. That's not what this is about. If you've got to get out of a relationship, get out of it. Okay, That's not what this is about. This isn't about not making changes that are detrimental to your well-being, your health, and your safety. This is about not making changes to a plan that you've committed to during a time of consolation. Okay? So, prime example. I, we feel close to God. We feel in love with Him. I, I make the decision, okay, I'm going to read the scriptures five minutes a day, every day before I go to work. I'm going to meditate. And we do that, and then it dries up. Don't make a change. Don't quit. Don't especially quit during the time of desolation. Why? Because the enemy wants to weaken this movement. Right? So the very thing that is helpful for us 
The enemy wants to weaken and to get us off track. So that's what we mean by don't make a change. If you've committed to something in a time of spiritual consolation, when that dries up, don't go back on what you decided you were doing close to God. It's pretty practical. Where I see this a lot, or I used to see a lot of high school, was with young men uh, discerning uh, all the priests and having confusion around that. So what I would oftentimes say, I would ask this question. When you when you experience in your heart a certain closeness to God, when you experience in your heart a certain fidelity in wanting to be in union with God, what are you most strong to? Right? Because we can have greater confidence that the good spirit is consoling us in that moment of spiritual consolation. Um, but let me put it to you in a different way. A couple years ago, a former student of mine who was down in the seminary was having a tough time. And uh, he was a couple years in, and uh, he, he was just saying, I don't know if this is for me. But he was, you know, should I say, should I go, should I say, should I go? And I asked him the question. I said, right now, are you in a place where, where prayer is easy and God is close? He said, no. I said, no, I'm change. That would be really foolish to me. Wait for the peace to return. Then, when the peace returns, you can have greater confidence in making a decision then. Why would you make a decision when you're down in the dumps? Don't make decisions when you're down in the dumps is the moral of the story. Make them when, when there's a certain closeness to God because we've got more confidence that, that God's working. That's basically rule five uh, in a nutshell. Don't make those major changes.